0: And if you would remain standing for our scripture reading this morning, turn with me to the fifth chapter of Matthew. We'll be reading verse 48 to the first verse of chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's look to our Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, indeed, we hear the call of your word. We hear the weight of that word as we are called to be perfect. And we know, Father, that is a weight that we can never hope to overcome. And yet it is indeed the gracious truth of your gospel, that that weight has been overcome on our behalf. Help us indeed, Father, to be perfect even as we hear that call to beware. Help us to examine ourselves, to look within, and to see Christ and Christ alone. We ask in our Lord's holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. What is indeed a joy to be in the house of the Lord today we're privileged to see the sacrament of baptism and to understand what that means to be able to reflect upon it for ourselves and what it's meant for us in our own lives I'm very grateful to be here with you today I'm very grateful for the offer that the church has made to me to allow me to extend my ministry into Arkansas, having served for several years in Texas and I look forward to the time of being involved with the presbytery here and with you specifically as a church. I'm also very humbled that the session would extend to me the offer to preach to you today, to bring the Lord's word, to step into the pulpit. I'm also quite convinced that I could never have in a million years imagined that series of events that would have led me to this pulpit today. It becomes more apparent to me each and every passing day that the Lord does indeed work in mysterious ways. And for those of you here, those familiar faces that I see, that I know from Pinnacle Classical Academy, I'm very grateful to you in a very specific way. As I reflect upon my own life and I know my own struggles, to know that you would enable me and trust me to work with your children and to educate them, even to a fourth grade level, is a very humbling thing indeed. In my short time already teaching at Pinnacle, I've been humbled in several different ways. The Lord has used that time as an opportunity to show me through the students A lot about myself. At times it's not things I'm always very happy to see. One thing I have noticed indeed as I reflected upon this sermon and exactly what I was to bring to you today, and it's things I've seen not only in school but it's things I have most definitely seen in my own household and very likely for all of you parents, things that you've seen in your own household as well, is that children have a certain tendency They have a tendency anytime they get caught in the middle of doing something wrong to suddenly be very sorry. They're very sorry for what they've done. They may even be very quick to apologize for what they've done. Especially, as I said, when they get caught in the act of doing it. As I said, even in my short time at Pinnacle, I've seen this work out in several of my own classes. And about the time I start to get a little aggravated by it, I can't help but reflect and wonder, how many times is this true of myself? But then I have that very calming sense of knowing, well, it's OK, right? I mean, I can't really help it. I mean, nobody's perfect. There's something that was brought to my attention as I saw again, a, A church sign that I've seen actually on a number of different occasions. I saw it in some of the churches in Paris. A sign out in front of it that seemed to give us the same perceived truth. A sign that read again in front of a church, no perfect people allowed. Now on the surface, this seems like it's a very pious thing. It seems like it's Really a recognition of our own sin. And yes, okay, we sin and I sin and you sin. And let's all just come and sin together, right? Isn't this really speaking about our inability not to sin? What could possibly be wrong with that? I mean, isn't this exactly what Jesus just told us in the first verse of chapter 6? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Or what? You will have no reward from the Father who is in heaven, Christ told us. Again, if I think about something like that sign, no perfect people allowed, it seems like a very accepting, a very welcoming thing on the surface, right? A a bit of a come as you are type of attitude. I mean, if I don't try not to, to sin, if I don't try to be perfect, then I've got absolutely no possible worries of violating these words of Christ, do I? Well, before we get too far into this sermon, I do want to make a a few things very clear. As we go through this text, I want to make very clear that the sermon today is a sermon that is for believers. Believers is not an evangelistic sermon that i bring to you this morning now please don't get me wrong the lord can and does and i sincerely hope will use many different means even the means perhaps of this sermon to bring men to a saving knowledge of himself however the primary aim of the sermon this morning is not an evangelistic sermon as we gather together in the Lord's house, I am speaking to Christians. And I'm speaking to us all today and calling us to recognize a few important points about ourselves as Christians. You see, as we bear that name, that title of Christian, the Christ-like ones, we are indeed called to be a picture of that one whose name we take. In these very few but powerful words that we've heard from Matthew 5 this morning we're reminded of exactly what it means to be a picture of Christ we're reminded that it means to be perfect even so all of us perhaps all too often find that we tend to look far more like the world around us than we do like Christ very often if you're anything like me find yourself acting, speaking, oftentimes unfortunately even thinking like the world around us. If we're very honest with ourselves we may even find ourselves at times longing for the things that the world longs for. Even pursuing those things. And like those young children that I mentioned earlier very often we are convicted as we know that we're essentially caught in the act. We're convicted as we read through the word of God. We are convicted even by our own conscience as believers. We find that in that moment we may be very quick to apologize. We know that we've been caught. Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I mean, after all, I'm I'm not perfect. What we're more likely to mean, if we're honest with ourselves, is, Lord, I'm sorry I got caught. Well, this idea, this idea of apologizing, a word that really means the very opposite of what Christ is showing us in the 48th verse of chapter 5, as we see, is that same thing for which he condemns the Pharisees in chapter 6 this morning. That word apologia, literally a speech in one's, uh, one owns defense, what does it mean to apologize? It really means to explain myself, to justify myself, my own behavior and to do it on my terms. So do you see the problem that we very quickly run into this morning? In those words of Christ in verse 48, we hear that we as believers are indeed called to meet a standard. As those words of verse 48 echo in our minds and in our hearts, we all know that we fail to meet that standard. But the truth of Scripture is that we are not called to apologize for our behavior. We're not called to apologize for our sins. We are not called to justify ourselves before the Lord God. We're called to repent. What does it mean to repent? Is it to offer up a quick I'm sorry and sorry I got caught? No, to repent is literally to turn around. And not just to turn around so that we don't have to look at God in our guilt, but it's to turn around and to walk the other way. It's to go in the opposite direction of our sin. Now, another thing I would like for you to understand this morning is what I'm not telling you. I am not, this morning, preaching to you a doctrine of perfectionism. You see, the Apostle John in 1 John makes very clear that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. His truth is not in us. Believe me, this morning I am not calling on you to call God a liar. This understanding of our sin is something that's important for us. It's important for us to know it in all of its facets. The idea of glorification, of that sin having once and for all been removed, even that temptation to sin having been removed from us as believers, is something that will not take place for us in this lifetime, short of Christ himself returning. Sin, we see throughout the scriptures, is an absolutely real and absolutely terrible part of our continuing condition in this world. It's a terrible part of our lives, even as believers. Even so, we are... Now also infinitely blessed as believers, as Christians, those Christ-like ones, to live with another glorious truth. It's a truth that echoes from this same passage in 1 John. It's a truth that even in light of our inevitable failure, our inevitable sin, there has been a promise made to you and a promise made to me that all who confess their faith in Jesus Christ and find that faith based on the perfection of Christ alone, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't stop there. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God has indeed promised to see us as perfect when he sees us in Christ. He has also promised to make us perfect through that blood of Christ and through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit within the life and heart of everyone who is his. So what ultimately is wrong with the idea that's expressed in that sign that I described from that church? The idea that no perfect people are allowed. You and I all know that we're not perfect. Surely, anyone who even aims at that type of an unapproachable, unapproachable target must really be nothing more than that Pharisee that Christ just got through condemning in verse 1 of chapter 6, right? That Pharisee who was out there purely to justify himself in the eyes of men. You see, We are indeed called most certainly to be aware of practicing our righteousness before men. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, does that call to be aware now absolve us of the call to be perfect? See, those words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 are absolutely clear. They are absolutely undeniable he doesn't draw it out into some long and lengthy statement that we can dwell on for long long periods of time and try to unravel every single letter and every single word he makes a very clear statement to it you therefore must be perfect and if he needs to add a little extra weight to it he even tells you what that perfection looks like when he tells you as your heavenly father find that these words from Christ echo directly from that call of the Lord to Moses in Leviticus 19 where he is told you must be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. You see Christ did not tell us to give it your best but I know you're going to fail. He didn't ever tell us it's okay to sin. I mean everyone else does it. Just be sure to apologize after you do it. So what does Christ say? And how are we possibly to be perfect and still yet beware? Well, beloved, there are seen very clearly in the pages of Scripture that there are only two kinds of people. Sheep and goats. Wheat and tares, the Scriptures tell us. Perfect people... And sinners bound for hell. Those who are justified in Christ and those who are not. Hear me now as we deal a little more with this idea. We are 100% saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and anyone who tells you anything different is bringing you a false gospel of a false hope that is found only in your own justification of yourself, your own apology to God. Beware. That justification that we need is not one given of ourselves to God, but a justification that has already been given to those whom God calls his own. That declarative act in which God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who are his own is a finished act when your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's done. But we must be sure to remember the scripture also makes it clear to us While we are indeed saved by faith alone, the faith which saves is never alone. This is what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Our own shorter catechism in question 35 defines this idea of sanctification for us. We're told that sanctification is the work of God's free grace Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. To what end? To be enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It is in light of this power, a power that already dwells within every single believer, that this wrong understanding the doctrine of sanctification, like we find expressed in those trite sayings, like no perfect people allowed, really completely misses the mark of that command of Christ to be perfect and to beware in three different ways that I'd like to examine with you this morning. First of all, it misses that mark by becoming a justification for my own sin. See, we can hear words like these, we can dwell upon wrong understandings of sanctification, and we can find within those words, really, a soothing salve for our wounded conscience. I mean, nobody's perfect, it's, it's okay, but we find that that soothing salve is really nothing more than a deadly poison. But, I mean, after all, if nobody's perfect, if, it, if there's really no other way, then Why even bother to concern myself with sin? We find that any awareness whatsoever of sin actually betrays the fact that we all feel and know that need for perfection. We know a need to be better than we are. We know that that need is one that is based upon a standard that is clearly outside of ourselves, but it's a standard that we can simply never seem to obtain. I've had many, many conversations over the years, and I've had a number of them since I've even been here in Arkansas with men that seem to know this standard but yet not quite seem to understand it. These conversations may go something like this. Well, I was thinking about things, and I know I probably should be in church, and I know I shouldn't do A, B, C, D, and E, various different things that I know I shouldn't do anyways and I know those sins yeah they're in my life they're there and I I I feel really bad about them and I'm going to try not to do them anymore um I know that I'm could be better but hey I I could also be worse at least I'm not like Joe Bob down the road and I know what he does and I mean he doesn't even know the words to Jesus loves me but I do I I was in church I've heard some sermons I mean, it's going to be okay, right? I mean, nobody's perfect. And these men who openly claim to be Christians tell me these things, and I hear those words, and I know that struggle within. And yet I can't help but hear the words of the Apostle in Romans 6-1 echo in my mind. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we have died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. John tells us the identical thing in 1 John 3 when he tells us that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, John says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7, he gives a very clear warning. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We can't help but hear that call of Christ, as he himself put it in verse 48. Perfect. But now, if we really break it down a little bit and we all are honest with one another, isn't really that kind of thinking nothing more than a works-based righteousness? Isn't that just me trying to again justify myself before God by showing him all the good things I've done and showing that I'm not doing all the bad things that I could be doing? Isn't it really just like dressing up as a Pharisee in chapter 6? Well, John goes on to show us in that same chapter, a little deeper, the difference between that Pharisee and that believer, even in the same acts, is where that call to be perfect finds its power and where it finds its hope. John tells us that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. But why? Because God God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's born of God. He even goes on to clarify that power and that hope and where it comes from a little further as he defines for us exactly what that perfection to which we are called really looks like. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, it's in this love, the idea, the understanding of what that really means, that we find that second way that a wrong understanding of sanctification completely misses the mark when it shows us a failure to love God's law. Now, have you ever stopped and thought for a minute, why in the world would I ever love anyone other than myself? Now, that sounds pretty terrible. But think about it. What does our culture tell us? When we think about the grand wisdom of the world around us, the wisdom of men far more intelligent than ourselves, who feed us ideas like that false religion of evolution, from a purely physical sense, if this religion, let's call it what it is, is true, the only thing that could ever motivate me to do anything is what? To pass along my own genes. So really, the only way that anything is good for me is in some sense if it's bad for you. Really, if we think of even altruistic acts, the only reason that they could possibly be good would be if there is for some reason a benefit to me. According to the wisdom of the world, love, in fact, is completely meaningless apart from love for myself. Now, before we think, well, that's rather extreme, we can look at our own culture and find what love looks like. We can hear a culture that is completely obsessed with sex that tells us, no, love is really blind. Love is all about loving whoever or whatever you want. It's all about you, how you feel about something else, how you feel about someone else. There are no standards. We can even draw it out of the culture and say, well, that's a bunch of unbelievers. And draw it in the walls of many churches where we find a great deal of shallow cultural Christianity, a lot of easy believism that says that, well, really love is whatever you want it to be as long as you are nice. Essentially, nice equals loving. If I'm not hurting someone else, then it's okay. A standard that is still set on nothing but myself. But does this sound the word of God defines love? It's simply a feel-good, warm, tingly feeling on the back of my neck when I think about someone or something else. What about that well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Jesus himself even draws this idea of love down even purer, even simpler for us, when he simplifies that idea down to its most fundamental expression in light of who he is. How does Christ himself define love? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me, he says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now I won't lie, this isn't an easy saying. It clearly wasn't an easy saying, even for the ones to whom he spoke it. We hear the disciples, as they struggled to grasp what in the world does this really mean, Jesus? They asked him, how, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. And Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him. And make our home with him. Whoever does not love me. Does not keep my word. And the word you hear is not mine. But the father's. Who sent me. You see beloved. This acceptance of sin in our life as something that's simply inevitable is really the complete and total opposite of what love is. It's the opposite of the attitude of the psalmist who said he longed to show love to God, a love that had already been given to him by God, and to do it by living before God a life of obedience. Plead opposite of one who longs to look upon the face of that perfect God. A God whose law has already been hidden in his heart. A law that is not seen. Even as we read this morning as restraint. As hindrance to some natural desire. But rather, a law that is a delight of a new heart. A new nature that has been made new in Christ by God heart that has looked upon perfection, a heart that now longs to return and to reflect that same thing to God. You've got to be careful to remember something. Jesus never once condemned the Pharisees for obeying the law. Jesus never once condemned the Pharisees for being too perfect, or for going a little too far in their faith. In fact, if we read there in the fifth chapter of Matthew in verse 20, Jesus reminds us that if anything, the Pharisees didn't go far enough. He tells us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, instead of condemning the Pharisees' holiness, Matthew 6, 1 really speaks to a desperate need of all of ours to beware of our sin, even while we yet pursue the call to perfection. Christ told them, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. As believers, our love of God is absolutely, unquestionably shown through obedience. Plain and simple. But it is an obedience that is lived out in order to display to the world a reflection of God's perfection to display God's holiness, to display God's love to us in a way that gives God all of the glory that is due to him. Those Pharisees of whom Christ warned us, those Pharisees whom he condemned so many times, did in fact seek to obey, but they did it for a very, very different reason. Those Pharisees were quick to seek in their own mind to obey, but to do so in order not to reflect God's perfection, but rather to reflect their own righteousness, their own holiness, and to do it to others so that the glory could be received by them. You see, the love that those Pharisees knew was a love that was indeed directed towards themselves. It was a very self-centered love a self-centered desire to change themselves into something that they felt looked holy to other people around them. Rather than to be changed by God's holiness into what God wanted them to be. Third and finally, it is in fact in this self-centeredness that's seen in that same no-perfect-people-allowed attitude that ultimately misses the mark of sanctification by showing itself to be a denial. A denial of the perfect, completed, and finished work of Christ. Beloved, the warning to beware does indeed still ring as true now as it ever has. It is indeed directed to each one of us, as it was ever to any Pharisee. Sin does, sin will remain, so long as we walk this world on the path to glory. However, sin is not and cannot be victorious in the life of any Christian. Do you understand that? Failure is not an option. And failure is most certainly beloved, not inevitable. The fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians reminds us of this blessed and inevitable outcome of this truth that we do not fight a losing battle, but we fight a battle that's already been won. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, it is our duty to daily heed that call to beware of the temptations of this world, temptations to sin, temptations from within ourselves from sin, but we must do so with the absolute certainty that the perfection that is demanded by God is a perfection that has already been given by Him. It is in this certainty, beloved, that you and I must wake up every single day and pursue the call of God to be holy, to be perfect, Not just so that we can be our best selves or live our best lives now. Not because our hope of perfection is even in ourselves or our own actions. But specifically because it is not. Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. Our hope is not in ourselves, brothers. Our hope is not in our good intentions. Our hope is not even in our good actions or good behavior. But our hope is in the certainty that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God our hope, our power for perfection is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So why then bother to strive for perfection? Why bother to even seek to be holy? Why even try? Because you already are. You In Christ. Consider this for a minute. As you sit here today with your faith in Jesus Christ alone, God can never find you more or less worthy because of any good work you ever do or don't do. Let that sink in. That he has already loved us, has as Ephesians 1:6 tells us, blessed us in the beloved. The King James, a phrase is rendered that He hath made us accepted in the beloved. You see, beloved, justification is finished. You are as right with God now as you can ever be. You are indeed beloved. Charles Spurgeon, in dwelling upon this phrase, accepted in the beloved, had this to say. Are there grander words in any language than these four? There seems to be a sacred poem in these words. To my heart there is more heavenly music in these four words than in any oratorio I've ever heard accepted in the beloved. See, it is to you, each of you with faith in Christ, the accepted and beloved of God, that I speak this morning to remind you that we rise each and every day to walk in holiness, not because it shows God how perfect we are in ourselves, but rather because having already been made perfect in Christ, our Obedience to His law now reflects to God that perfection of the one whom He says He is well pleased in. and It shows to the world the glory of God through our reflection of Christ. The Father loves us with a perfect love. When He loves us, when He accepts us in the Beloved. In Romans 8, Strengthens us with those sweetest of words of the apostle who confirms that even in our ongoing war with sin, we have a certainty of perfection. And it's one towards which we strive. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, this God gifted recognition that my security is found in Christ alone is exactly why we cannot be driven to complacency that simply accepts sin. We cannot try to justify our failures on the ground that nobody's perfect, but rather we must be driven to engage more every single day in that constant battle find ourselves in the midst of a ceaseless war against sin. A war for a perfection that can only be found in the reflection in us of that perfect love of Christ that has already been shown to us. To all of you who are now accepted in the Beloved, Upon this certainty, perfection has already been made eternally ours by the work of Christ. Because of this, let us seek daily to reflect that perfection to Him. And to do so as we walk in the footsteps of our Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit alone, even as we are indeed very careful to beware of the temptation to sin that still resides within. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, indeed we know that awful temptation that lies within Like the Apostle, we cast woes upon ourselves. Who then shall free us from this body of sin? Help us, Father, through your Spirit in that moment to turn our eyes towards that one who has already freed us. Keep us focused upon Christ and help us, Lord, in all things to walk in his ways, to show Christ not only through our words, through our walk to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray in his holy name.